This is the Embrace the Messy podcast. I'm Shannon Schinkel. I'm a high school educator, challenge seeker, lifelong learner, and embracer of all things messy. I find my inspiration from individuals who are passionate about learning and embracing change. Join me as I share my own experiences and interview people who will inspire you to embrace the messy too. I love being a drama 10 teacher. Teaching drama provides a reprieve for my more marking heavy humanities courses. I love it because I get to laugh every day at my students' creativity on stage and get paid to do it. Okay, I don't mean actually laughing at my students, but let me tell you, 13 to 60 year olds can be friggin' funny. Anyway, you get what I mean. And I also love it because when drama kids put on a show, they show me that they are amazing humans. Shows have many moves in order to run smoothly, and I believe there are four moves that are integral. Every drama teacher is going to have their own moves. These are mine, finely tuned after teaching drama for about 20 years. First, students need to buy into the play or plays chosen for a show. I consider it a tremendous responsibility to determine what roles suit my students and will make them shine. Second, I aim to provide lots of time so they can struggle with the demand of memorizing lines and learning the blocking, you know, where to move, the cues, etc. As much as I consider myself the director of these shows, it's definitely not a dictatorship. Students freely present their own ideas, even help me fix areas that aren't working. And that inclusivity invests them in the show at a granular level. Third, they need to show responsibility and earn their fellow actors trust. Students get to know each other and their strengths in the first six to eight weeks of the course before we start rehearsing a show and become a family over the six to eight weeks it takes to develop a one hour show and they have each other's backs because success is not a solo goal. When one actor looks good, everyone looks good. Lastly, students are trusted to choose a charity or cause to raise money for. Drama 10 shows are always free, at least when I do them, to anyone who wishes to attend either the matinee or evening performance. This becomes a wonderful opportunity to develop students' personal and social responsibility. I always provide ideas or past examples, but the students determine the charity or cause as a group. Sometimes it's because one student has a personal connection to that cause or a charity. Uh, For example, I had one of my students a couple of years ago courageously shared his father's battle with PTSD And after his incredibly moving story, the class unanimously chose the Canadian Mental Health Association. So once chosen, it's up to students to promote the cause or charity. Often students decide to go from class to class, you know, telling them about their show and why they're doing it. Um, They'll make announcements and request the local newspaper to come and interview the cast. All four moves... The show, the time, the trust, and the cause are meaningless without the others. The type of play, time to practice, and cause are meaningless without trust. The energy becomes stale or even fractures without trust amongst the cast. 
The play, time, and each other's trust are important, but their impact is mute without the cause. The cause provides motivation that goes beyond the actor's egos. The amount of time, cause, and trust trust are fruitless if the play isn't one that makes the student's skills shine, is too complicated, or isn't relevant. And if there isn't enough time to rehearse the show, the show will just simply be a chaotic mess of miscues, forgotten lines, and low energy, and that will have a direct impact on donations, they'll thwart the camaraderie within the cast, and make a great script ultimately look bad. When all moves dance together, it's like a perfect humming machine. Harmony. The class is completely absorbed. Now here's what happened a few years ago. Story time. Every so often I teach two drama 10 classes in one semester. Now when that happens, we put on separate shows at separate times during the matinee day for classes in the school to attend and a double feature at night for families to attend. Never the same show twice because each class is its own entity and as I said before, the show has to mesh with the class. We rehearse in our little drama classroom for several weeks and the week of the show we rehearse in the big auditorium where the actors learn the bigger stage, working with lights and sounds and refine their cues with the support of a stage manager. When there are two classes working at the same time in that week, each class gets to see what the other class is doing. And in turn, each class gets to rehearse in front of um, more people other than me because, let me tell you, all I've done is cackle and laugh and I'm like the only one laughing and they think that their show really isn't funny, but when they get to do it in front of, say, 30 other people from the other class and they're laughing, they realize, okay, this, this, this play might actually be, be pretty funny. So one semester, a couple of students from one of the classes who weren't that keen on performing in the big theater on the big stage and yet stayed true to the project for the three days of rehearsal in the auditorium, unfortunately decided to abandon the play the day of the shows. While I wasn't entirely surprised this occurred, I had so hoped they had bought in enough to follow through. But yikes, 45 minutes before the matinee for upwards of 500 students and teachers were getting ready to watch, I had to announce that the two actors were not present. There was a big you know, universal gulp and a sigh from everyone in the vicinity, all the students, but within about two minutes, two students from the other cast, the other class, stepped up to fill in the parts. They didn't even have to think about it. They just, they had watched the other show, so they knew the blocking. They grabbed the stage manager and ducked down a corridor and rehearsed the single scene they were in that had lines. Thankfully, not too many lines, so they could memorize their lines in a really short period of time. Other students, you know, work together grabbing costumes and props from the green room and backstage just to make sure every, they knew what to do. It was like, here's the problem and we've got it, Shinkle. Don't you worry. About 20 minutes later, so since this is coming from the time that I made the original announcement that we had lost two actors, um, the two actors actually pulled me down in the hallway and I heard them run the lines and they had it complete with the body language, the use of props, 
an accent that was killer and I was beyond impressed and the show went off without a hitch and then they did it again that evening the audience couldn't even tell we were in a crisis you know minutes before the show started so you can just see that's what happens when there's this harmony and the kids all those four moves work together now at the close of every show and the sets are being packed up and our little dram room organized and tidied because let me tell you after doing a show it's like a tornado hit it just ask my custodian I always have to apologize to her um, every semester when I do a show and she understands and she laughs she's very sweet students are always eager to know these are the things students want to know after doing a show they want to know how much money will we be donating or but they don't care about things like their mark when a student beats themselves up for missing a line they are immediately comforted by another student who compliments them on how many laughs they received their confidence booms because they were well prepared for the show their reflections build up the community they are engaged and motivated and they are sad that the show is over but relieve the pressures off the group who did not know each other well at the start of the semester are now actually even being seen eating lunch together in the hallway it's just this beautiful harmony and that is indeed the best part Dr. Heather Lyon has made a career out of explaining this motivation and engagement phenomenon I experience in my Drama 10 classes. Her two books, Engagement is Not a Unicorn, It's a Narwhal, and The Big Book of Engagement Strategies, helps create a common understanding of what engagement is and isn't. She is a certified reading specialist and has a PhD in educational administration. Currently, she is an assistant superintendent for curriculum, instruction, and technology for a suburban school district in western New York. Her third book, I'm so excited about this, a collaboration with Alex Keeler called 50 Ways to Engage Students with Google Apps is coming to bookstores very soon. Dr. Lyon is a wealth of knowledge and I loved every moment of this conversation. I hope you enjoy it too. Here's Dr. Heather Lyon. Hello, Dr. Heather Lyon. Welcome to the Embrace the Messy podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Shannon. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, I'm I'm so thrilled um, for the listeners. Um, I have to let you know that the moment that Dr. Lyon came on the Zoom with me, I've been fangirling <laughs> and so excited because I am I am a super fan. I know that you and I have connected over Twitter, and uh, before we dig into uh, some great conversation, I can't wait. Um, I just want to acknowledge that. It is such a thrill to have you here with me, and it is your work has been really impactful on my learning journey, and it's so great to refer to your resources with my colleagues around engagement and because there's so many more, there's so much nuance to it. So I just want to thank you for all of the work that you do. It's very inspiring to me. 
Oh my gosh, you're giving me goosebumps. Thank you very much. <laughs> you're very, very welcome. So of course, I am completely invested in the engagement matrix. Uh, that just blew my mind. And I want to dig, I want to dig into all the particulars of that. But first, I would like to know a little bit about your origin story. So I'm I'm fascinated by origin stories. So I guess what I'm asking you is, how did you get into education and what led you to an interest in the study of engagement? My origin story is uh, probably a little bit unique in that um, education was my backup plan. I did not plan on being a teacher. In fact, I planned on not being a teacher. Um, I wanted to be a writer. And so uh, I didn't want to live with my parents for the rest of my life. And so like an actor might become a uh, waiter or waitress. I um, became a teacher. Um, as my backup plan. And I had a wonderful cooperating teacher in my first student teaching placement. And she really was so passionate about teaching that it was contagious. And I realized, because uh, I was um, getting a degree in English and going for my um, minoring in education. And I was like, oh my gosh, I get to wait, I get to assign people to read and write about things that I want to talk about. This is awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> so then I needed a new backup plan. And then I entered into administration. Um, and I was getting some training as an administrator on engagement, actually on Danielson and the framework for teaching. Okay. One thing led to, and that really has um, a focus on engagement in specific portions. One thing led to another, and so it got my wheels turning. And then, as I write about in the beginning of um, Engagement is Not a Unicorn, It's a Narwhal, my first book, actually, it was at a substitute recruitment fair at a different school, and I used their adult bathroom, um, which was, um, you know, it had a poster in there on engagement in the bathroom from uh, Philip Schlechty. And he had the five levels of engagement. And I was like, oh, this is this is really thought provoking. I felt like he was on to something, but that it it didn't exactly fit for me. And so okay. I kept thinking about it. And then my thinking led to talking and my talking led to thinking. <laughs> and then people were like, oh my gosh, that's so great. Um, where did you read that? And I was like, no, 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 I didn't read that. Th these are my thoughts. And they said, you should write a book, which is, I mean, that's fuel to somebody who originally wanted to be an author. Mm -hmm. So so I was like, all right, I'm in. I'm writing it down. <laughs> I love I love hearing that because I, I think very similarly, I like to take somebody's ideas and kind of put a new spin on it. There's some aspect or some corner that I think needs tweaking. I like to kind of overhaul it. And, and I and I share that a lot of my work, as you know, already online. And I always encourage educators. I say, you know, nothing ever has to come from the ground up. Sometimes you can be inspired by other people's works and kind of put put a different spin on it. And, you know, over time, it, it, that adjustment that's it's so it's so it's great for our own brains it's 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 great to come up with our with some some interesting ideas 
educators are the best thieves. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So uh, of course, I, I love when I share your work, I just love saying the title out loud, right? <laughs> Engagement is not a unicorn, it's a narwhal. And teachers go, what? <laughs> I know. But it, it is, it's a fantastic title because there is this vision of what engagement is, or I've heard it from educators, that if kids aren't motivated, it's something about just about them, which yeah. you know, I guess is partially true. But at the same time, what you say by having such a unique title is that engagement isn't this fantasy. Yes. It's actually, which is symbolic of the unicorn. That's right. Well, you know, it actually is something practical that we can get our hands, you know, messy with. Um, and that's why you say engagement is not a unicorn, it's an our world. It's not a fantasy world. It's actually really, really practical. Would you say then that your goal in writing engagement is not a unicorn, it's a narwhal, is to kind of throw the ball into the educators' courts and say, this is more our responsibility than you realize? Would you agree with that? Yeah. So um, for your listeners, because I often come across uh, when talking about the book, um, some people are not familiar with what a narwhal is. So I just want to establish for your listeners. So um, a narwhal is, it looks like a dolphin and a unicorn had a baby because it's a whale that has, a, it's actually a tusk, but it, we would say a horn out of, coming out of its forehead. And even if you have seen this, you probably see it on like a three-year-old little girl's shirt um, and so there's, if you don't know that a narwhal is a real animal, you think that it is just as mythical as a unicorn is because mm. I mean, if a dolphin, if what looks like a dolphin has a horn coming out of its head is, is real, then why couldn't a horse have a horn coming out of its head? But <laughs> unicorns are real. I'm sorry, are not real, but ask a one or a two-year-old and they could point to a unicorn. They, you know, even though it's fake, but narwhals, I have to explain to people, yep, they're swimming around in the ocean right now as we speak, a real thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so engagement is often thought of as something that is mythical when it is real. It's just not as common as we want it to be. Um, and, and sometimes we don't even know it's real when we see it or hear about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And so on page 166 in engagement, is not a unicorn. It's a narwhal. I have, uh, I think this is one of the best pages in the book because it has a T chart basically that compares, um, engagement as a unicorn to engagement as a narwhal. Mm -hmm. And so for example, it says engagement as a unicorn is students applaud and thank the teacher for the fantastic lesson, right? And if you think that that's what engagement is, you're not even going to aim for that because like that's mythical. Right. Kids aren't standing up and applauding, even in, um, you know, the beginning of Dead Poets Society, which I love that movie. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, but engagement as a narwhal is students feel proud of their own work and learning. That is something that we can build into classrooms um, and teach students to not try to please me, the teacher, 
what is pleasing to you? What is the learning that you are trying to achieve and how do you know if you've achieved it? Um, are most of the strategies, like I love that T-chart too, because again, I've got post-its and yeah. writing all over the book. Is it, are most of the strategies, like when you're trying to determine whether kids are engaged is communicating with the student seems to be the most fundamental aspect or are there physical signs? Because like, as you said, Ooh, right, mm -hmm. as you said, like, you know, often, you know, uh, the principal walks into my classroom, the kids are, you know, their heads down, they're working on a worksheet and oh, they're so engaged, right? Mm -hmm they might not be just because they're sitting still in their nice little rows and their heads down and they're not talking when engagement actually could be, you know, very physical or it's so noisy, right? Yes. It's so busy and crazy and chaotic and it's messy, right? Right. It's students challenging the teacher potentially or each other, you know, um, yeah, engagement cannot be measured by sight necessarily. And so it's very hard visually to tell the difference between a student who is compliant, meaning I don't want to do this task, but um, my reasoning for doing this task is due to the extrinsic consequence, positive or negative for doing the mm -hmm. task, or mm -hmm. the relationship I have with the person assigning the task. So that's compliance right. Right. versus the lowest level of engagement, for um, which I write about, is interest, which is I want to do the task and I still need an extrinsic consequence or relationship to continue to do this task. Because right. interested people, when the bell rings, still hear the bell. Yeah. And mm -hmm. absorbed people, the highest level of engagement, those kids, you the bell rings and you have to tell them the bell rang. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, but compliant kids and interested kids, I want interested kids. Mm -hmm. That's my lowest level to aim for. And that's the place where I expect most students will be is at the interested level. Um, yeah, compliant kids can look very similar to interested mm -hmm. kids. So you really have to talk to the kids. And so um, when talking to them, the compliant kids will say, yeah, I have to do this. Um, and the interested kids might say things like, yeah, I get to do this. Um, and the absorbed kids, you don't have to ask them about it. They're going to tell you about it. Oh, um, yeah. They're going to interrupt you. Oh, I'm doing this really cool thing. Right? That's exactly okay. right. Or they won't talk to you about it because you're interrupting them. And they'll be like, oh, sorry, you're here. What is it you need from me? I'm really in the zone here working on this thing. Um, and so uh, absorption definitely looks different than interested. Mm -hmm. um, but compliance and interested look awfully similar, which is why compliance is really a deceptive state because we often give ourselves credit as educators that because the kids are doing what we ask them to do, that they want to do the thing that we've asked them to do. Right. So I want to back up just a little bit because I know you and I are obviously very familiar with your engagement <laughs> matrix. Yes. So yep. in your early work, you had mentioned that engagement was 
at first glance, and I think this, I saw this even when I was going to teaching, like this is my 26th year, it's, it was, it was linear, right? Yes, a um, continuum. Like what you've proposed, and for listeners, I'm going to, in the show notes, uh, put a, a link to the matrix. So it's four quadrants, right? Yes. So would you mind kind of giving us the, the, the visual kind of explaining the vision? Cause it's uh, again, it's like four boxes on top of each other. It's, it's a matrix. It's not a yes. line, right? Correct. It's, it's like, like a, a window pane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so it started out as a continuum and I was really happy about this continuum. So the lowest level of engagement is non-compliance. Then it bumps up as you're going from left to right. It bumps over to um, compliant then bumps over to interested and bumps over to absorbed. And I felt great about, you know, that aha. Um, And I also understood that I could draw a line separating compliance from interested because non-compliance and uh, compliance are really disengagement and that Mm -hmm. interested and absorption are really engagement. So that felt good too. But what I wanted to know was what are the variables that might shift somebody from one level of engagement to another level of engagement? And so to do that, what I did was took this linear continuum and bent it pole to pole to make this window frame of this two by two matrix. So now, listeners, close your eyes, unless you're driving, keep them open, but um, (laughs) So non-compliant is bottom left and on top of non-compliant is compliant. Bottom right is absorbed. On top of that is interested. So um, what's important to know is that the the variables. So along the um, horizontal axis, so from left to right, you have the variable of your relationship to the task. So compliance and non-compliance, which are on the left, you have a low relationship with the task. I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. So compliant people and non-compliant people, they feel the same way about the task. I don't want to do it. On the left, I'm sorry, on the right, you have interested and absorbed, and that's when you want to do it. So that's the first question to ask um, in your head about the things that you're doing, or to your students, what are they doing? Do you want to do it? Because if the answer is yes, then you're going to be at least interested. If the answer is no, at best, you're going to be compliant. Okay. Okay, now up and down, so the vertical uh, uh, axis, you have your relationship to the consequence, positive or negative, because consequence is neutral. So it's the carrot or the stick. And you have, or the relationship with the person assigning the task. So do I like the person? Mm -hmm. Will I do it for them? Yes or no. So let me, let's walk through this matrix together really quickly. Okay, perfect. So um, I am non-compliant because I don't want to take out the garbage. And so I don't want to do the task. And it doesn't matter if you give me a positive or negative consequence. It doesn't matter who's asking. I'm not taking out the garbage, okay? Non-compliant. How do I shift to compliance? Well, I can sweeten the the opportunity for the carrot by saying, 
um, you know, money I or out, something like that's that. That's exactly right. right. Yep, I yep. wouldn't take out the garbage for free, but you're going to pay me $20 to take out the garbage. All right, now I'll take it out. Or could be a, a, a negative consequence, the stick. I wouldn't take out the garbage for free, but now you are going to find me if I don't take out the garbage. I have to pay you $20 if I don't take out the garbage. All right, I will take out the garbage. Um, or I wouldn't take out the garbage for you, Shannon, but for grandma, I love grandma. <laughs> I don't want to disappoint grandma. I will take out the garbage for grandma. All right. So that's how you would make a shift from non-compliance to compliance. And by the way, I don't think anybody is ever going to be engaged in taking out the garbage. So, <laughs> so I do get asked, you know, what about, are there ever times where something is just not going to be engaging? And I'm like, yeah, paying taxes, not engaging. And so, but I will be compliant with that because I am afraid of the stick. Um, that's that's an important point because not not everything you you don't necessarily have to be interested and absorbed in everything, right? Correct. Yeah. 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 So um, so when we're talking about tasks that the highest level is going to be compliance, um, the question then becomes: What are the um, motivators, meaning the consequences or the relationship that's going to help you? Um, achieve the highest level of compliance that you can mm -hmm. be comfortable with? <clears throat> How can you make it easier on yourself, in other words? So laundry is my example of that. Um, I know for some people, the way that it's easier for them is if they do one load of laundry a day. So that way, they always have this cadence of doing it. That's mm -hmm. not the thing that makes it easier for me. For me, I I relegate it to the weekend. I never think about laundry during the week. It's only done on the weekend. Um, and so, so those are examples of how to make the shift and how those variables work. Um, okay. So I have a thought and it's connected to something else later. So I'm going to hang on to that for now. Okay. So what are the variables then? How does one, so how does one shift then to, to interest because that right. ends up becoming that other part of the matrix. What happens yes. there? So I know what I'm going to say is probably like one of those moments where people are like, come on, really? That's your answer to this? But yes, come on, really? My answer is the, the quickest way to get from compliance to interested, particularly in a classroom, is to offer choice and or voice. And so my when I talk about choice and voice, I use an analogy. So imagine, Shannon, that it is um, your birthday and I ask you for your voice as to what restaurant you would like to go to. So, okay. okay. So for the sake of this conversation, we're going to make this very universal to everybody because no matter who your listeners are, they know about McDonald's. I recognize, Shannon, we're not going to McDonald's for your birthday. I like the idea of a McDonald's birthday party. And if I was 10 <laughs> years old, I would be all over it. So no, let's let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do that. Okay. So we're you voiced, you could have gone anywhere. You voiced McDonald's. But when we go to McDonald's, you now have choice because it's no longer that you can go there and order a spaghetti dinner. It's no longer that you can go there and order a Whopper. You, ha you have choice as to what's on the menu there. 
And so voice is what restaurant do you want to go to? Choices, order from the options that are on the menu. And in schools, we often, as teachers, eliminate student choice and voice when it is really easy to create that because the standards most of the time are written in such a way that they do not um, explain or dictate, that's the better choice of word, dictate how the individual teacher with their students are meant to achieve the learning. The what, the how, all of that is determined by the teacher. And mm-hmm. so will an essay lead to this destination of learning the standards? Yes, but there are probably a dozen or more other ways that that standard could be realized. And if you only say, right, you have to write this essay according to this prompt, you are lowering the levels of possible engagement because it could be you have the option to choose this prompt or this prompt. Just something that basic ratchets up the opportunity for engagement or to say, you know, um, you have the option of this prompt, this prompt, or write another prompt that will address this outcome. Put it on the ha- in the hands of the kids. Most of the time, kids do not exercise that option of, yeah, I'm going to, you're letting me decide, mm-hmm. um, you know, and voice it myself. But just seeing that that is an option can be very um, engaging to most kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So then let's say, so they can, according to the matrix, they can actually shift from both compliant and interest to absorption. Yeah, correct. Because yes. that's the essence. That's why we're, you've changed it from being linear. That's like you bent it into the window pane. Yes. And what's the one factor that leads to absorption? Well, let me pause and say it's very important for anybody um, listening to understand that it is 100% not my goal to have 100% of students absorbed in 100% of the classes that they take every single day. That's just unreasonable. I am not um, in 100% absorbed in everything that I do. I just told you about the laundry and taxes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not the goal. The goal is how do we find ways to invite students to bring the things that they are absorbed in into the classroom? And oftentimes I think teachers think about that as, oh, Shannon likes soccer and Heather likes to cook. And, but I'm teaching, um, uh, geography. This has neither of those things have anything to do with geography. So sorry, they're out of luck. I'm out of luck. We just have to go through the motions and do this like we've always done it. Mm -hmm. And, um, in the work that I've done around engagement, one of the things that I think is really important to know is, um, that engagement is certainly can be about things like soccer or cooking or dinosaurs or, you know, fill in the blanks. But it is also about ways to learn and interact with people and values that you have. Mm -hmm. So 
I, uh, you might be somebody who really likes to learn with other people. I might be somebody who really likes to be a leader. And so how can we leverage those um, learning styles, those emotional mm-hmm. uh, uh, influences and bring that to the table? So um, also things like finding authentic audiences um, and authentic purposes for learning, um, finding ways to um, integrate things that students are connected to or want to connect to in the future um, are ways to leverage absorption. The other piece too is that, I mean, let's be honest, there were some classes that um, that I found highly interesting and some assignments maybe that I found absorbing but a lot of the things that kids get absorbed with happen uh, because of school, but not during the school day. Okay. Yeah. Um, so there, they've, there's something that they've, they've read about, or we've say talked about in the class, they go home and they're Googling it. Maybe right? that, oh, they that might, is definitely absorption. Yeah, right. Yes, because yes. They're, or they're like, oh, you know, Mrs. Schinkel showed us this 9-11 documentary and it was really, really cool. And I'd like to investigate a little bit more into, you know, she talked about the falling man and we want to talk, I want to look at that. So that as soon as they are doing something on their own, especially even in their free time. That's 100%. That's, yeah, that's that is fun. absorption. But absorption is also... Uh, participating in the musical. It is playing, um, you know, on a team. It is being a member of a club. It's all of that stuff, which is why for some students, for many students for whom school is not, they're just being compliant in school, but they are absorbed in something that is school adjacent. Mm -hmm. When we take away those absorbing things from them as a consequence for not doing well in school, we end up cutting off our nose to spite our face. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to just a little bit about the non-compliant to compliant. And I want to tell you a little story. So I, as you know, I've got an assessment background and that's my shtick. I I call it right. I love Uh, it. And I've I've run a a team of educators called our SALT team, our secondary assessment learning team. And I showed the engagement matrix. Uh, I think we listened to you on another podcast. And one of our teachers, just a fabulous teacher, she works with quite vulnerable students. So she has a background, of course, in, you know, trauma-informed, trauma-informed practice and intergenerational trauma. So with these vulnerable students, she's just happy to sometimes get those students to from non-compliant to compliant because the win, and this is what I wanted your, um, your opinion on this or your, any suggestions here, is the fact that because they've moved from non-compliance to compliance, it's because of that relationship with the teacher now yes. has been built. What are your thoughts on that? Listen, let me just say that shifting from non-compliance to compliance is a victory. I mm-hmm. will never minimize that. Um, mm-hmm. And so you wouldn't take out the garbage before, but now you are. I figured out what motivates <laughs> you enough 
Woohoo! Yes, woohoo! It's so, a woohoo in the parent world, that's for yeah, sure. That's exactly right. <laughs> exactly. And so um, let's not minimize that at all. And let's also not settle for that as engagement. That's the rub. When somebody um, is looking at um, a child who is being compliant and they are satisfied with that as as though the child is engaged, then, then we, do, we should not be celebrating. We should be diving in. We should be digging deeper. We should be thinking about choice and voice and other opportunities. Mm-hmm. But absolutely, a child who has experienced trauma, who has trouble building relationships, who, you know, there are lots of reasons why a child can be non-compliant. The other thing is, um, if I may, that in the book, I include that there are at least three different ways that each of these levels of engagement manifest. And because when we, I think most people, when they think about what noncompliance is, they think about it in this very stereotypical, very singular manifestation as a rebel, like the person who's noncompliant, they're just, you know, giving into the negative behaviors, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And the kids who, you know, steal things. That's exactly right. These are the kids, they're rebels without a cause. Um, and they're just being jerks to be jerks because that's who they are. Um, and in fact, I would say that is actually the least common type of um, or manifestation of non-compliance because most of the time we actually have a reason why we're behaving the way that we do. Right. They can actually be in, you know, intrinsically motivated to be non-compliant yes. based on history. Like when we talk about trauma informed practice and, yes. you know, we're trying to do a lot of work in understanding our work with, um, especially our, our, vulnerable indigenous students in our district and with some of their backgrounds like we need to be aware of that if their parents had experienced trauma at school yes or were not treated appropriately they're gonna they might feel that way as they set foot in the building yeah right yes so it's not necessarily I love how you mentioned this because it's not necessarily this this how do you say not really like a bad thing we need to just understand where these kids are coming from so that we can fear we we the teacher can figure it out it's not up to them to figure it out it's up to us to figure it out yes um, you're reminding me, my daughter, she has a friend whose uh, uh, father is um, an Indigenous person, and he is my age, and uh, your listeners can't see me, but um, I am proudly 45, and so um, so by any means, he's actually a, just a couple years younger than I am, and he was telling me how when he was in high school, he um, did not say the Pledge of Allegiance because that's not his nation to pledge to. And so he didn't stand, he didn't participate, and he ended up getting written up for it and repeatedly. And so finally they got tired of fighting with him and his um, uh, the other students who were indigenous. And so they moved them to a different class, uh, homeroom all by themselves, um, where they did not have to say the pledge. 
However, they moved them so far away from everybody else that they ended up being late for their first period class because of the distance between where they, and so it was a systematic failure of these kids. And so is it any wonder that he might have some trauma related to that? Mm-hmm. But his yeah, not- segregation, that just, that, you know, oh. all sarcasm intended, a segregation yes. totally fixes everything, right? Yes, exactly. But that's to right. accommodate teachers, right? They're the ones yes. who felt uncomfortable. And so what's so fascinating about this is somebody who is looking at that and saying, well, he's not being compliant with, um, with saying the Pledge of Allegiance. So is it that he's being a rebel? No, he's not being rebellious. So another manifestation of um, noncompliance is actually activism. And so he was being an activist, he was standing up or rather sitting down for his beliefs. And so like Martin Luther King Jr., mm-hmm. um, you know, at the time, he would have even said, yes, I'm being non-compliant with your man-made laws, but that doesn't mean that I am, uh, but your man-made laws are not strong enough that they are going to override um, what I believe to be natural law. And natural law, God's law says that we are equal. And so I will not allow you to segregate me and to treat me poorly and so forth, just based on the color of my skin. So he actually would not He'll say, you can call me non-compliant if that's what you need to do. But really what I am is absorbed in my beliefs. Oh, I love that. Oh, right. man. Mm-hmm. Right. Because um, I am, I, the task that you want me to do, I'm not going to do. But my task and my motivation for doing my task mm-hmm. is coming from within. Absorption comes from within. Mm-hmm. And my task is to stand up for my rights, stand up right. for the rights of other people and so forth. So call me non-compliant if that's what you need to. Mm-hmm. I'm absorbed. Mm-hmm. The third manifestation of non-compliance is the most common. It is um, normalized non-compliance. And so, Shannon, I mean not to put you on the spot, so I'll use myself <laughs> as a rule of thumb. I will drive five miles per hour faster than the posted speed limit. It doesn't matter if the posted speed limit says 30 or if it says 60 or something higher. I'm always driving five miles an hour faster, even though it's a speed limit sign. And so (laughs) it is not a recommendation. It is not the minimum. It is the maximum of what you're supposed to drive. And I am getting passed often (laughs) when I am only driving five miles an hour over the speed limit, which is really funny. Um, And even funnier is that when somebody is driving the speed limit, I am cranky about it. Like, come on. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Hurry up. (laughs) Right. It is 55. Why are you going 55? (laughs) Come on. You know? Yeah. 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 So that is normalized noncompliance. It is normalized noncompliance. When you go to a place, you order a drink and um, you pay for the medium or whatever, and they allow you to fill your cup. And so you fill your cup and before you leave, you top it off. That is that is shoplifting. <laughs> it is, yeah. It is. I you shouldn't pay- be laughing, but it's yeah, it is, yeah. 
Right. No, and it's so, a good, great example. It's a great example. We yeah. never, I mean, if you would never go into the drugstore and like pocket a lipstick or something like that, never, but at a fountain where you can, you know, fill up your cup or whatever, well, everybody tops theirs off right before they yeah. leave. Everybody does yeah. that. That's yeah. normalized. Ever, that's right. Okay. So everybody's doing it. So it seems fine. Right. Okay. It's not gotcha. only not that it yeah. seems fine actually doing the thing that you're supposed to do seems wrong. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. Driving 55 and a 55 does not feel right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I, I, I resonate with this so much because of, again, the assessment work that I do and sometime in my early days of doing it, it, a lot of it was in a silo. And when I would try to discuss it with other educators about the things I'm doing, which is a lot of you know, the standards-based grading, it, it, it was like kind of off compared to what is considered, um, you know, the, the, the norm, right? Yeah. When yeah. In, in fact, there really isn't any research that the norm <laughs> works and what I am actually doing is actually working, but we don't have to get into that. We don't have to get into oh, that. Oh, that is a different but, podcast. Invite that, me back. That's a, that's, that, oh, oh, I will. I, okay. On it. Yes. I know. I've already had, um, talking with a few people say, you know, you need to do a series that's just, just on assessment coming back again to the whole, um, actually, there's a little bit of a, of a story, but it's a story that I hear at the end of every semester. And that is the student who at the end of the year chronically wants to, in the last week, hand in all the assignments <laughs> that they haven't done. But, and here's the thing, I've actually sat in staff rooms and, and talked to my colleagues. I'm like, that's actually a pretty normal behavior, even though it's driving us crazy. And we're like, why couldn't you have done this like a month ago, you know? And that's because there was no, maybe there was no motivation. There might not have been a push from home. There might not have been enough of a push either from admin or there's, it's that sudden realizing I'm going to fail. I better hurry up and get that in. Right. And it's at that 11th hour. So that actually makes sense. And I think thinking about like universal design for learning, if I was just reading a fabulous book by Leanne Young, um, Seen, Heard, and Valued, which is her latest book. And she talks about UDL. Fabulous. Huge shout out for the, to Leanne for that book. And oh, I almost lost my train of thought. But it, it, this idea, if we actually design knowing that we are going to have some of those students who leave things to the last minute, it actually might, we might prevent that chaos. Is, am I making any sense? Like in terms yes. of mm -hmm. the students that it's, you know, it's, you know, no matter how many things we try to get them engaged, if we know that they're going to be at, at the last minute, because we hear that every semester, what can we do? How can we universally design so that that doesn't happen? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, what you're describing is compliant behavior. Let's be very yeah. clear. Yeah. These are yeah. kids. I'm not sure that the kids are disengaged with learning, um, mm -hmm. but I think they are disengaged with those assignments. Sure. And so if they need to do the assignments in order to get a good grade, all right, I'll do the Or assignments. even just to pass and they're right. freaking out they're not going to graduate or right. something like all that. All the reasons. Yeah. I think the isn't it funny that the question we ask is about how do we 
how do we stop that behavior in kids? When really, probably the question we should be asking is how can we design um, learning so that kids are doing the work all along because they see value in that all along. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Because I knew you were going to say that. I mean, do we want kids who are going to be early compliant? (laughs) Is is that the goal? Yay, you will be compliant on my timeline. Um, Or do we want to create learning that is at least interesting? Mm -hmm. And so they will um, be willing to do the work because the first Mm -hmm. question to ask is, do I want to do the task in the first place? If the answer is no, at best, it's going to be compliant. And so some of the- if they're interested and absorbed, chances are they're not, you're not going to end up probably having to have that battle with regards to them passing anyways. Cause if they're, they're right. that engaged, that's right. They're probably doing pretty well in the course. That's right. It's just and a natural consequence. That's right. And so how do we focus on the learning that is intended and use that as a way to design instruction that kids want to do. And that might require, uh, that might require some overhaul of some things, because my guess is we have a lot of teachers who are just compliant with their teaching. Like they're not in love with what they're doing either, but they feel robotically like they're going through the motions. Mm -hmm. And so um, engagement tends to be fairly contagious. And so if you have a teacher who isn't in love with what it is they're doing, um, not that they're not in love with teaching. This is not a question about Mm -hmm. um, somebody's intrinsic desire to be a teacher. Let's just put on the table that if you're in the position, you care about kids. You and but I hear a lot of teachers complain about um or lament about being handcuffed to certain things. And so I am saying, can we uh, loosen the grip of something that a teacher feels handcuffed to um, in order to not compromise on the learning that we want mm-hmm. kids to do, right. but the approach to the learning? I think you, that you touch on such a good point. I think you know, I'm thinking about the teacher who is so passionate about their content and they, it, they vibrate, right? They, they yes. are so excited to come in and they're teaching about, you know, biology or they're teaching about history. And then the learning opportunities don't match that passion. So the kids... Yes. Yes. We were all in, they say during the lecture, because they can see how, you know, and, they, and then yes. with the, the learning opportunity, thunk, you know, like, yeah, okay, it's time to do, you know, another bubble sheet test or another assignment or something like that, right? Like that, there's a disconnect, right? Yeah. Yes. Dave Burgess, who wrote um, Teach Like a Pirate. Yeah. And shout out to Dave, because um he helped inspire the title of my first book. And actually he is uh, publishing my third book that is coming out soon uh, that I've co-written with Alice Keeler. Um, 50- oh, I love Alice. Yeah, Alice is fantastic. So mm-hmm. it's uh, 50 ways to engage students with 
uh, Google. And um, oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Do you get so, into anything about? Sorry, I'm I'm moving no. off on another tangent. Do you mention anything about a- AI in that book? Yeah. Um, and so oh, awesome. Um, yes, Alice is the Google expert. I'm the engagement expert. And she so, is. She is right. But um, so Dave Burgess in Teach Like a Pirate, he asks about you know how do you create or he encourages people to create lessons that you could sell tickets for, to. Right. And so how do you how do you teach in such a way that kids don't want to miss your class? And Mm -hmm. a lot of times we assign things to kids that we wouldn't want to do (laughs) that. We don't enjoy grading. Like if you're not going to enjoy grading it because it's 100 things of the same response, kids probably are not going to uh, get engaged in doing that either. Yeah. Yeah. I love, um, I do a lot of inquiry-based learning. Um, Mm -hmm. I love like, you know, 20% time and any of the project-based learning. So I wanted to share with you. So I'm I'm kind of like looking for some personal advice, Heather. I'll do my best, Shannon. You're going to do, you're going to do your best, but I think you've already sort of answered it in the fact that you mentioned already that it's okay if kids are just just interested, but if my goal is to get them to absorb. So here's the thing, and I guess here's, I got a bit of a, a question here for you. So in my drama classes, right? If I do like in drama 10, they do a show and we are actually, it's a free show, but we fundraise for a charity. You know, they are so absorbed to the point that, you know, during cleanup after we're done the show, they don't care about their marks. They don't care. They're more <laughs> interested in who did it for the charity. And we'll have kids, you know, who step up and jump into other people's roles because the show must go on, right? They're just, yes. they're all in. What I find is even though I'm doing like the 20% time, the project-based learning with say social studies eight or English 10, they, they, they seem really engaged, right? Because they've chosen their own question and their own thing of studying, right? But like, as you mentioned earlier, you know, when the bell rings, they are ready to go. And they, they suddenly still have that, you know, what did I get? What's my mark? You know, that kind of thing. What I'm wondering is, do you have any thoughts on, is it, (laughs) is it easier because it's an elective class? Or do you think there's something to do with the fact that the academic classes are compulsory and that kids already come in with this mindset that this is the class I have to do, I'm being made to do it, and it's just harder to get them to absorption? What are your thoughts on that? It's a tricky question, I think, hey? Well, (laughs) I want to say that your, well, I applaud and admire your desire to have the kids in your class. And it sounds like you are somebody who wants all of the kids to be absorbed in everything. I do. I really do. I can tell Um, you are going to miss that mark. It just is the nature of being a human being. And so I love to read, you love to read, but we might not both always love the same books. Mm -hmm. And so my sister, her favorite book, favorite book, I read it. It is not my favorite book. My best friend, we both love to read her favorite book. I read it, not my favorite book. 
Um, and so you're just, it's, I can't think of any one thing that everybody can rally behind. Um, mm -hmm. I even think of something, you know, like amazing, like a day off, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but for some of our students who live in, um, homes where, uh, they may have food insecurities or, you know, there might be somebody in the home who might be abusive, a day off is not the same for them as it is for me. And that's a really extreme example, but I just want to point out that even the things that you feel like, well, everybody's going to love cake. Yeah. Not if you have mm -hmm. a gluten allergy. Um, right. and so so I just want to moderate that because there are lots of people who are going to, if you think that that absorption is the place where Heather Lyon is saying, that's where we have to aim. Um, I think that you're misunderstanding the intention here and thinking of it more like a unicorn um, okay. than a narwhal. Awesome. And so- <laughs> The, the last thing I want to say with this. I, I, I love it. I love it. I kind of, I kind of got the sense of that, like earlier in the conversation, mm -hmm. right. When we were talking about this and the, and the interest and I need to, I need to, you're, what you're essentially saying is I also, I need to give myself a little bit of a break, right? Like that, like in terms of if the kids are interested and maybe there are slices of the project that has them absorbed, that's a win, it, yes. They don't have to be absorbed 24 seven. And no. you're not also going to get that from every single student in the class. Right. And so in the book, I write about my oldest son when he was in fifth grade, they did a history comes alive project. He um, did his on Steve jobs. He would not stop drawing apples everywhere. <laughs> you know, telling me all of these random facts about Steve Jobs. Hey, mom, did you know that he didn't wear shoes? You know, that type of thing. Um, and when the project was over, he did not continue learning about Steve Jobs. That was done for him. Mm -hmm. He did not continue to do things that were biographies. That was done for him. But what he loved about that work was he became a resource for other kids because he's really artistic. And so they were asking him to help with their posters and things like that. Holy smokes, was he absorbed in that. And that mm -hmm. type of, oh, I can help other people with the skills that I'm good at that they may not be as good at. That makes me feel good. Man, that's a great, I don't care if you ever read about Steve Jobs again, but damn, I hope that you have opportunities where you can help others. Mm -hmm. um, and strive and look for that. And I hope mm -hmm. that you know enough now about yourself that you can advocate and that you have teachers who allow you to do that, to say, mm -hmm. what are the skills and strengths that fuel you? And let's find ways to build that into this class. Mm -hmm. And if teachers are looking for strategies and they don't know where to start, um, besides engagement is not a unicorn, it's a narwhal is again, your second book, the big book of engagement strategies. And what I really like is the layout of this book, because there are strategies for getting kids from non-compliant to compliant. There yes. are, this is how you get them interested. This is how you get them absorbed. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, that's great. So like, it's almost like, 
would you say it's like, you know, here are the ones, if this is where you're starting, and then when you're ready, you can look a little further and go a little deeper. And yeah, and they're just, they're so great. Oh, thank you. I, the beautiful part about writing that book was that I was able to reach out to a lot of other educators and who mm-hmm. contributed to the book. And so, um, you know, the strategies are not just theoretical, they're, they're real world, real teachers have used them practical. And um, some of them will help um, somebody feel really validated, like, oh, yeah, I've done that before. And others will be like, oh, I've not thought of that before. I can give this a go. Um, a new saying that I have uh, from some training this summer is what is safe enough to try? Um, and I really I love, love that concept. Um, what is safe enough to try? Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's the baby step, right? What is safe enough to try? Yeah. Yes. And that's the other thing too, love is that, that um, you, I say in both books, like figure out, just one thing that you could try, just one, don't do everything. Just what is one thing that you could try and start small and build off of that? Because most of the teachers that I've encountered tend to be perfectionists. And so like they, they read this and they're like, okay, I'm going to go do everything. And then that becomes overwhelming. And most teachers um, are trying to do too much uh, within their, uh, their 24 hours that they have in a day. And like me, they're trying to create 25. And uh, I, so no, I don't know. What is one little thing that you could start and try and build off of that? Don't overhaul the year, overhaul a lesson. (laughs) Oh, see. And I think, so here, I was just getting ready to ask you for your elevator pitch. Yeah. And and I think you just gave it to me, right. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so at the end of every, um, podcast, I'm asking uh, uh, whoever I'm speaking to this, this question, I kind of tailor it for the individual. So you're on the elevator, you are on, let's say the fourth floor, someone yeah. gets on, they're going to the seventh floor. There they come on, they're like, Dr. Lyon, I'm having a real hard time with my students, and I can't get them engaged. You've only got three floors and the elevator's not stopping. What do you tell them? I think I already know what you're going to say. <laughs> what do you, but let's, let's say it again for the kids in the back. <laughs> I would say, well, um, let's make sure that you understand that engagement is not kids applauding for you, that it's, uh, them doing things like applauding for themselves. Let's understand that the first question you, that you need to ask is whether or not they want to do the task in the first place. Cause if they don't, then you're, then you're sunk to start. Um, And um, let's think about ways that we can incorporate choice and voice into what it is you're doing. And let's take a look and see what impact that has. That's, oh, that's awesome. That's great. (laughs) Heather Lyon, you are a delight. I have. I have enjoyed this conversation so much. And I, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, you can hear it in my voice, right? You and are I, I, absorbed I, in engagement. <laughs> I am. I am. I know. Cause people will wonder like, how do you do all this stuff? Like off the side of your desk? And I'm like, oh, I love it. It just fires me up, but I've really enjoyed this. Thank you for spending some time with me uh, on the embrace the messy podcast. And I'm going to be taking you up on that offer that maybe uh, sometime in the future, we will talk about the relationship between engagement and assessment. Thank you for coming. 
Thank you and congratulations on your podcast. This is such a wonderful experience and um, good luck to you. Thank you for listening to the Embrace the Messy podcast. This podcast was produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Tene First Nation. I feel truly blessed to be able to live, work, and play here. I'd love to hear from all of my listeners. If you are inspired by someone who embraces the messy and would like me to interview them on the podcast, or you have feedback about an episode, send me an email at embracethemessypodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode. This is Shannon Schinkel signing off, reminding you to embrace the messy. Bye.